listening to the Cars of Carlisle Network, podcast episode number 147, featuring the second in a series about American Motors Corporation, with crew members Lou Genicopoulos and Sam Farner. Cars of Carlisle is your favorite internationally downloaded podcast about all things automotive. Darren and his CFC team are ever searching for interesting automotive happenings, real stories about real car people, and fun features to inform and entertain you. Each week, the Cars of Carlisle crew brings you show topics ranging from car shows to team adventures to auto racing weekends to behind-the-scenes human interest stories from car nuts that live across town, across the country, or even across the globe. Come join the road trip. Today, Sam and Lou continue their deep dive into American Motors Corporation, this week as a follow-up to episode 144. From the faux full-size ambassador to the muscle car legend AMX, the guys cover some of the hottest AMC cars to roll off the assembly line from the 1950s through the 1970s. So, let's get revved up! Hello and welcome back, Cubers, to your favorite informative automotive podcast. I am your trusted host, Darren. As always, we definitely enjoy having you join us again this week. In just a few minutes, we're going to be handing the keys over to the young guns here on the CSC crew, and they will be bringing to you the Intracast installment featuring AMC Part 2. Remember, this is your podcast. Together, it's all about car community, car culture. I want to send a special shout out to our friends at classic.com, C L A S I Q.com, the AACA Museum in Hershey, as well as Carlisle Events. And along with many, many other companies, just like Cars of Carlisle, we're working diligently to keep things going for our car industry and, and the hobby. And thanks to everyone, fans and companies alike, for that. And as a matter of fact, just over the last couple of days, I've been speaking with Mike Garland, the public relations manager at Carlisle Events, about him coming back on the CFC show to share the 411 on what we can all expect for the 2021 car show season at Carlisle Events. So stay tuned for that very, very shortly. By the way, Cubers, have you subscribed to Cars of Carlisle? No? Really? Why not? Come on, it's the best way to have this podcast queued and ready for you each Tuesday evening or Wednesday morning, depending on where you are on the on the globe. We have, of course, a lot of listeners in Europe and, and Asia, so wherever you may be, why not, during this episode, subscribe to this podcast using your favorite podcast app or platform, even the one you're on right now. If you haven't, we'd really appreciate if we've earned five stars, love a positive review, and uh, certainly share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues and, and family. Certainly, you can show your support through PayPal. Just go to paypal.me forward slash Cars of Carlisle. It's never too late. You are part of the team. Let's make it happen. So thank you for your consideration of how you'd like to support your CFC community. We appreciate you. And special thanks and promotional consideration to the automotive OEM dealership sponsor of this network, and that is Porsche Mechanicsburg. Porsche Mechanicsburg at their new Porsche Center, state-of-the-art, beautiful modern building at 6625 Carlisle Pike in Mechanicsburg, which is just a short 12 to 15 minute drive east of Carlisle. They are part of the Faulkner Automotive Group. Faulkner Automotive Group has been around since 1932. Porsche Mechanicsburg offers a unique selection of new and pre-owned Porsches to choose from, or you could even custom build your new Porsche through Porsche Mechanicsburg. 
No matter the Porsche of your interest, whether it be a pre-owned or perhaps even a brand new, it could be a Cayman, the Porsche 718, or the 992 generation of the Porsche 911, perhaps it's the four-door Porsche Panamera, could be even one of the SUVs, the smaller Porsche Macan or the larger Cayenne, perhaps you're interested in the all-electric Taycan. Whether that vehicle is new or pre-owned, be sure to check out Porsche Mechanicsburg. All right, it is trivia time. The trivia question provided to me by Lou and Sam is this. AMC produced the Rebel Machine in limited quantity in 1970. All of those vehicles came standard in one striking color scheme. What three colors made up that scheme? And they said uh, to give you a small hint, the keyword hashtag Merca. So that answer awaits at the end of this episode. Now, time to throw to Sam Alou. Let's talk AMC Part 2. Thank you, Darren, for the introduction. And on today's, or tomorrow, or tonight, whenever you're listening to it, Part 2 of the AMC Sam and Lou Intracast, we're going to highlight some of the more common and well-known AMCs, or in my case, just the ones I like the best. Sam, how are you? I'm doing all right, Lou. I've been sick for like a week and a half, so we've kind of put this off. Uh, and I hope my voice doesn't sound too terrible. I think it's fair to say not with the cocoa, just with other things. Yeah, I think it was just a cold. But anyway, Lou, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm excited to do this. Uh, last podcast, I listened back and I was rather negative. So I'm going to well, try and not and be as negative. Anyway, uh, we should probably start with some honorable mentions because between the two of us, we're really only like I'm covering the Rebel, the Ambassador and just jeep in general but really amc kind of kept it afloat until chrysler took over is how i'm going to put it and we did talk about a lot of the jeep uh legacy i guess you could say in last pod so your three cars will be well i'm just going to do an uh one honorable mention and then i'm going to talk about the amx and the javelin which Technically, are two cars at one point and then become one car, uh, but there's quite a lineage there. So I guess we should probably mention things like the AMC Eagle, which we talked about in last pod. Great car. Actually, genuinely did like that car. Kind of wish I picked it over the Ambassador to talk about a little bit more in depth. What about you? Any that you missed? Uh, the Matador. I kind of. I think we briefly touched on that last time, but I kind of wish we would have talked about that a little more. And then uh, the AMC Pacer. And I actually – I set out to do research on this car and then realized it was literally four years or five years just from 75 to 80 of essentially just a bunch of random trim levels. Um, so I would have spent about 30 minutes talking about the DL package, the Limited, the Sundoner, the Levi's package, Carl Green Enterprise Pacers, the Stinger, the AM Van, the Crown Pacer. It just so many random – different trim levels uh the one cool thing about the pacer though if you haven't seen it it's a very unique looking car because it's so much of it is glass like the whole rear end of the car is wrapped in glass i think it's 37 percent of its body surface is is glass and it was called the jelly bean styling of it i think car and driver in yeah 1976 they dubbed it the flying fishbowl and also described it as the 70s answer to George Jetson's mode of transportation. 
<laughs> so, I mean, it's got that very like 70s retro futuristic vibe of, you know, what people in the 70s thought the future would be like. Uh, I It's pretty ugly, but it was apparently very safe because you could see everything. It was a complete panoramic view. Yes. And not to mention, or also we should mention the Hornet and Gremlin, which again, we talked about a little bit last podcast if i remember correctly but yep you know similar lineage in terms of very small and very compact oh one quick other thing the pacer also in 1978 they made a bunch of plug-in electric version ones hmm, like really? the whole the whole front bay was just filled with batteries so interesting i did not know yeah. that well, I'm going to talk about the exact opposite, although a common theme, I think, through American Motors that I didn't really recognize the first time around is even their full-size cars, which debatable if they were actually full-size, like the Ambassador, were recognized by the Motor Trends and the different magazines and publications to be you know, highly economical, even with V8s. Like some of the Ambassador models that would average 60 miles per gallon on a, a 327 V8 or a 304, whatever was in it. Uh, which is pretty impressive for a full-size car that is competing with the big threes full-size, whether that's a you know Chrysler Newport or a Buick Electra or a Cadillac or any other of the 14, 15 competitors it would have had. So I thought that was at least recognizable. But start it with you. I'm just going to kind of get into it. The Ambassador was the longest-running car that we're going to highlight. It was produced from 1958 to 1974 as an AMC ambassador by Rambler. Uh, Previously, you know, Nash had an ambassador model. Uh, It's always been a nameplate in in some regard for two of the uh, origination companies, but we're focusing specifically on the AMC run version. So if you look at 1958, what the goal of the ambassador is, is again, to be similar to like how the big three were structured with compact, midsize and full size automobiles. 58 was literally that start. So it was marketed as a full size car, but in comparison to other full size cars on the market, it was really a midsize. Uh, it had like a 117 inch wheelbase from 58 to 59, which is generation one. And I'm just going to say, keep in mind, if you look at like a a Camaro lineage, how many generations there are, where you have 67 to 69 is first gen, 70 to what, 81 is second gen, so on and so forth. We're covering 16 years and we're going to have like seven different generations. It's just. Yeah, and that's a, dude, that's a very common thing with all these AMC cars, which is kind of why I've been so negative on them is because there's so many changes throughout like it's every year it's a com- not a complete but there's at least a redesign every year they change yep. major things on them you know it's just i guess i mean there's something to be said with not being you know complacent and you know settling with what you've done resting on your laurels but boy everything that amc did they just did a million different versions of well and i'm gonna highlight too eventually they started combining different models to save money but they were still changing the design every two years like it's 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 almost maddening doing the research and then you and i were just talking before we started recording i'm going to go through some production numbers at the end of the ambassador there are years where i just have a question mark and there's other years where 
there's some like conflicting info out on the internet. And I'm sure if we did a really deep dive, went on like the AMC forums, we could probably find the correct production numbers and even breakdown of different models and stuff. But it is very difficult to dig up sound technical information. Uh, like I'm a Buick guy. I, everyone knows that. I can go on teambuick.com and I can get all the production numbers for year 63 through 87. Uh, it's all out there. It's well formatted. With AMC, I'm Googling you know, 100 different search strings trying to find 14 different numbers. Yeah, and you'll find so many different ones that contradict each other. And, you know, there will be people claiming that they got this from the factory and then there's no actual evidence of a sales receipt or an offering or yeah, it is maddening, I think is the word used. And that's a very apt word. Thank you. No one's ever said that about my vocabulary. First for everything. Well, anyway, first gen 5859 came in four different body styles, a four door hardtop, a four door sedan, a four door station wagon sedan, and a four door station wagon hardtop. 117-inch wheelbase, which is one of the longer lengths throughout the production line. Uh, and it was powered by a 327 AMC V8, uh, made 240 horsepower, which 1958, that's pretty good power. And, and they were they were a, an economical full-size car in terms of where they were at price point. So it was a relatively quality buy in terms of value for the dollar. So... And that really stayed the same for 58 and 59. Moving on into 1960, Generation 2, totally redesigned. Uh, actually, pretty good looking car if you go Google it. More sleek looking overall, I would say. There's you know, two options. You have the 327 still in a 240 horsepower or a 250 horsepower format, which had um, the car overall, similar to the Pacer Glass, it had a unique curved windshield. And that got rid of the old knee knocker windshield, which I don't really know what that means, but apparently it was a, a known dog-like type thing. Um, and in 61, you could get the 250 horsepower option became the standard, but they had this really cool power pack option, which was 270 horsepower. It gave you dual exhaust and get this, Sam, a guaranteed muffler warranty that would... Uh, be covered from the factory throughout the life of the vehicle. They were ceramic coated in 1961. That's pretty neat. But again, I mean, mufflers weren't expensive replacement parts. Like that's a weird thing to hang a warranty on and also expensive. Yeah. And we'll talk about this later when I get into mine, but AMC was actually like a big front runner on offering factory warranties. So, yes. that, I mean, that is kind of a kind of a uh, neat part of their lineage. Well, guess that. Guess what? That option gets dropped for 1962, and we're moving into the third generation, which, again, 61 sales weren't great. I don't know if I have that exact number. I will find out at the end when I scroll down on my little spreadsheet here. But they decided to cut cost and downsize the overall body, so it now shares the same wheelbase with the AMC Classic, which is the midsize uh, Rambler-produced AMC Uh it's 108 inches. The rest of the car has a slightly different design from the Ambassador, but you can clearly see there's a lot of part sharing going on. It has a, a unique uh, front end design and a like their taillights are unique, etc. Power pack, like I said, no longer available. But this is also the first year that they uh, offer the car in a two door, which is pretty cool. Again, 62 
one year only generation. So I'm going to move on to the fourth generation, 1963 and 64. 112-inch wheelbase. This is the first design by Dick Teague, who is honestly like, this is a good-looking car. I would go buy one of these. Google a 63 Ambassador. They're pretty neat. 112-inch wheelbase, like I said, develops a new stamping process. Uh, AMC does as a company, not just the Ambassador uh, model, but... It's essentially like the creation of the unibody and, you know, in large part, right, a unibody design is used by like every automobile manufacturer today. So really trend setting in that term, you know, offer rigid and rattle free structures. I personally like body on frame, but I'm a GM guy, so it is what it is. The AMC Ambassador by Rambler wins Motor Trend Car of the Year in 1963. Not a feat that should go unnoticed. And again, only one option, the 327 that produced 250 horsepower. Really nothing changes for 64. Uh, they redesigned the grill, do a couple other small stuff. But from a powertrain standpoint, it gets pretty cool. They reintroduce a 270 horsepower model. Not the same power pack option, but uh, same horsepower output. And then they have a twin stick transmission. So they didn't offer like a conventional three-speed or a four-speed. It would be a three-speed manual, but it has two shifters, so one to two, and then there's a two to three overdrive, uh, which I thought was pretty cool. It's a, again, rather interesting-looking console setup, so pretty unique, um, and that really writes it all for the fourth gen. The fifth gen, again, two years, 65 to 66. It uh, it officially becomes a full t- full-size car again. They stretch it out to a 116-inch wheelbase. It is the first year a, a four-speed is offered. Roy Abernathy, who's running the company still, this would be his last year in power, if I remember correctly, is like, hey, we really got to compete with the big three, so we're going to do the same small, midsize, full-size setup, and hopefully everything works out. And now on to the sixth generation, the 67-68 variety. It is a stretched wheelbase to 118 inches. It is the first year that they offered a convertible, and the 327 was now dropped for the new 290 and 343 V8s, the second generation in AMC V8 creation culture. Um, The latter, the 343, made like 280 horsepower and 365 foot-pounds of torque. Pretty good. I think most notably for this variation, though, is a four-link is introduced. Uh, They get rid of the torque tube in 66, which... To my knowledge, they're like one of the last automobile manufacturers doing torque tubes. But four links introduce more comfy ride on a coil spring, conventional drive shaft setup, pretty good stuff. Now, remember, folks, we're only 11 years into this and we are on generation seven, which, again, more is better in terms of wheelbase, in terms of inches. Bigger fish always gets the fry. 122 inch wheelbase for 1969 which runs through 73 now it's got the all-new 304 which is like 210 horsepower in standard variation they also offer a 360 which would be available both in a two barrel and four barrel and the latter had a, a second version of it which would be the 325 amx version 325 horsepower that is and in summation 74 the last year Another 122-inch wheelbase. For cars from 69 to 74, you'll commonly see them as like taxi cabs and 
police pursuit and that type of stuff. So that's cool. Um, I don't really have much more to say about them. If you look at production, just like the stupid uh, number of, of generations they have, 58, I couldn't find production numbers. 59, 23,769. Not a ton, but not bad. Uh, 60, I don't know. 61 really dips to 19,000. 62 dips even further. 63, which I believe is the first year of Dick Teague designing it, sales just skyrocket. Uh, all the way up to 37,811. 64 dips again, same body style, I'm assuming. So not a lot of people are, I mean, literally like almost the same Cardis or redesigned grill and stuff. 64 is back down to 18.6. 65 and 66 are, in my opinion, the strongest two years in terms of consistency. 65,000, 71,000 uh, models sold. 67, don't know. 68, 54,000. 69 is, to my knowledge, the all-time best production year, being at 76,194. Any questions on the AMC Ambassador by Rambler? No, there's just a million things going on, just like every AMC. Yeah, it's, like it's, it's just hard. Like I'm going to listen back to them and be like, mm, I don't know how great this sounds, but they're – most of them were pretty nice looking cars. Yeah, I was actually looking some up. Um, like, what'd you say, the 63? The 64. Yeah. That's a good looking car. Those are the Dick Teague models. Yeah. I mean, Dick Teague did a lot of good things for AMC, at least in the styling department. Both the cars I'm about to talk to were designed by Dick Teague. And Love I believe that. The, the Pacer was as well. Well, I mean, I so, don't think that one was winning any. So, yeah, that might have been a Stylistic trophies. All right, segue. What are you going to talk about first? Well, I think I'm just going to talk about both of mine because they run together and eventually become kind of the same car. Um, so the first one I want to talk about is the AMC AMX, which is an extremely, extremely highly regarded famous car from AMC, um, and rightfully so. So the AMC... AMX it was developed in 1968 and ran through the 1970 production year and was built to be a direct competition and also one of just two um, American-built two-seaters, the other, of course, being the Chevrolet Corvette, which Corvette, very similar dimensionally. I think the Corvette was a, an inch longer in wheelbase, but the huge selling point was that the AMX was considerably cheaper. So it was originally offered for you know $3,245, which was $1,000 less than a Corvette. And you could get so many, just so many engines in this car. Uh, a ton of small block V8s uh, ranging up to, I think, it was almost like a 300 horsepower, uh, 390. So very fast cars, uh, but they were a little misguided in that I don't think that AMC AMC knew who they were actually trying to go for of this demographic. Uh, I've read a, quite a few quotes and a bunch of old shocker. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. A bunch of old car and driver, road and track articles where the writers were just confused. And I pulled uh, one of my favorite quotes from them was a sporty car that handled like a sports car, confusing the buying public. 
and it had tire melting acceleration. It the car was fast. It could corner well, uh, but again, it didn't really know what it wanted to be. It was a mix between a pony car, or uh, yeah, yeah, I guess kind of a pony car, muscle car, and a European sports car. Whereas the Corvette, you know, even though that was a sports car, still had very foundational roots in American car, car culture. The AMC, it just didn't really know what it wanted to be. Again, they were trying to do this to appeal to younger audiences. I can't wait to read you the Rebel Machine advertising for 1970 because that's very on brand. Keep going. <laughs> Just you wait. So, so again, this is a two-seater. Uh, the one of two that are made in America uh, that are competing. Again, it only runs for two production years. So prior to this car even coming out, this car already stepped into legendary uh, territory. In 1968, early, or January of 1968, two AMXs, this is before production even began, broke 106 world speed and endurance records. They were built by Craig Breedlove, which, if you know what the Spirit of America is, if you're familiar with uh, top speed records, uh, Bonneville Salt Flats, this guy is an absolute legend. He broke countless countless records his wife and i believe his son also raced too but they took two of these cars and gave them the spirit of america treatment installing headers larger oil pans uh fuel bigger fuel cells to be able to go for the long distance speeds the high-rise intakes racing cams solid lifters you know pretty much anything you could think of big carbs engine rear end coolers really everything they took two models they used the small block 290 and the small block 390 bored them both out and pretty much just they went to town on these cars the complete suspension was redone uh all the internals are redone put roll cages added complete aerodynamic changes to front and rear spoilers for uh for lift and ran an official speed record in the 390 bored out to a 397 at 189 miles per hour at Bonneville and had an unofficial run clocked over 200 miles an hour all before the car even hit the market. So I'd like to hear that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's pretty incredible what they could do. And this car, they began working on this car, I believe as early as 1961. This is a Dick Teague, um, one of his originals and it came from two concept cars and or a, a concept car and two prototypes. I think it was the AMX one and the AMX two that they kind of morphed into two and they were coming out with the Javelin and decided that there's, there's two ways that they could have gone either do a two seater bespoke chassis and body for it. That was completely fiberglass or use the exact same Javelin chassis and just make it a two-seater. So obviously for production costs and not having to get a whole new manufacturing line or getting into the you know accelerated costs of getting a fiberglass body, thus putting you out of the amount um, where you're trying to be under the Corvette, they went with a two-seater Javelin, essentially. And that was the AMX. They introduced it at Daytona Speedway on February 15th, 1968 like four months after the Javelin came out. So it was a mid-model year, mid year launch, which again, just crazy. And from the factory, ran 130 miles per hour. I mean, 
It's a yeah, pretty wild. sick little car. AMC really was going after a certain kind of person to introduce the dealers to their new product line. AMC decided to hold their meetings at, at Playboy clubs and entered into a marketing agreement with Playboy Entertainment, uh, basically taking ads out in Playboy magazine. And their marketing like dollars were just oh, they just wild. threw them to the wind, man. So, so the one of the very first uh, marketing tactics they did was they gave a very special AMX to the Playmate of the Year, uh, and they made a huge deal about it. They advertised it everywhere. Uh, they painted it in a special color called Playmate Pink. Uh, it had their Go package, which came with power front discs, uh, twin grip differential, six-inch wide steel wheels, um, actually, uh, sorry, I believe they're magnesium. Thicker sway bars, heavy-duty cooling. So it was actually like a pretty bad little car. And, I mean, it had all the bells and whistles. And unlike any other car they put on the dashboard, you know, your VIN number was 362435 to reflect the Playmates uh, measurements. So very interesting car. Now, these things, like I said, they came in everything from a 290 all the way up to a 390. They were offered in nine different engine configurations with predominantly, I'd say, probably 70 to 80 percent of them coming in a 390 manual or a 390 automatic. Again, with this is only two model years. They've already had the Playmate Pink, which there's legends or rumors that they sold up to 100 of the Playmate Pink cars or then they also made 22 Von Piranha cars uh, distributed by Thoroughbred Motors in Denver, which were developed as ready-made racers for a drag strip or a road course. So they had one cool thing that – I mean most companies did this. This is where you get like Yanko Camaros and stuff like that. But they had a special parts group where you could go and basically have uh, – Cross-ram intakes, uh, upgraded cams, upgraded suspension parts and stuff, ready-made by them that you could order through the dealer. So they made 22 of these cars, and I don't know. I don't really think there's that many left, but they are pretty sick. Question for you. Yep. Can you name the Playmate that won the 1968 AMX? I just Googled it. Also a good-looking car. She's also 76 years old today. It is uh, Angela Dorian. That's not true. Who is it? Victoria Vitri. All right. Well, thank you. I don't know if I just made that name up or where I got that from, but all right. I don't know, but this is her. Okay. Not going to show. Continue. All right. Moving on. So just some numbers for how quick this car was and why it was able to compete in the Corvette market. So these cars were all running. Wait, you were right. Was I? Vitri's stage name, Angela Dorian, was Aha. chosen as a play on the ill-fated Italian ocean liner Andrea Doria, which apparently didn't. It was the worst maritime disaster to happen in U.S. waters. Worse than the Titanic? I'm not really sure how that's germane or that the Titanic happened in U.S. waters, but whatever. Moving on. So oh, true. here's just some production or some numbers from Car and Driver on how fast these AMXs were. 
So these are a 1968 and 1969. Both are 390s, which was the biggest they offered at the time. But in 1968, the AMX ran 0 to 60 in 6.6 seconds and had a 14.8 at 95 miles an hour at the quarter mile. They upped it just a little bit because, again, we're on the peak before uh, emissions came and crashed down on all the cool engines. But they ran in 1969 the 0 to 60 in 6.5 seconds, which is 0.04 faster, and a quarter mile in 14.68 seconds at 92 miles per hour. So less trap speed, but faster overall speed. In 1970, they ran a standard four-barrel carburetor with a 10.2-to-1 compression ratio, got it down to 6.5 seconds in the 0-to-60, and a 14.1 in the quarter mile. So most of what we've been talking about here is, is for the 1968 AMX. In 1969, they did very little different. Uh, they did add an 8,000 RPM tack and five-spoke uh, Magnum steel wheels. Added some color options to the striping, which AMXs are very distinguished in their side striping. Uh, when we get to the Javelin, that was also a big thing for them as well. Made some minor interior changes, and they came out with similar to Mopar colors um, like Go Mango and um, Plum Crazy. They came out with a brand of Big Bad Paints, which I think there's five. is like a neon blue, like green, orange. Yeah, they're pretty sick looking. Very 70s. In 1970, they received yet another mild facelift with a newly redesigned front end, uh, a newly redesigned rear end, a significantly longer hood, a uh, new grill, new suspension, <laughs> and completely, I mean, they just, they decided again. New car. And do it again. So... This was then called a sports car for the price the part a sports car for the price of a sporty car. It went for in today's dollars about twenty two thousand dollars, which at the time I mean you're getting an extremely fast car two seater uh, that was unique looking for twenty two grand. In the end of the 1970 model year, the AMC company decided that they were going to get rid of the two seater option and merge it into the Javelin and offer it as a high-performance Javelin model. Questions on the AMX before I start digging into the Javelin? No questions, sir. Continue on. All right. So, well, I, I have a question for you. What is your, what's your favorite AMC or AMC-adjacent car? I mean, probably the AMX. Okay. I just... Wasn't sure. Wasn't sure if your ambassador. What was more research. popular in? No, the ambassador stinks. What was uh? What was more popular in Trans Am racing? Did they use the AMX or the Javelin or both? Both. Both. The Javelin probably, but I don't know. I didn't do too much research into the SCCA stuff that they did with the racing. I mean, there's so it, there's a huge wealth of knowledge on their racing career. And yeah, we, we don't have, have three hours of the people's time. Yeah, it would have been a whole nother podcast. So my personal favorite is the Javelin. And at the end of the podcast, I will talk about why very briefly. But moving into the Javelin. So the Javelin, again, Dick Teague, his hands are all over this. Uh, this is the coolest car by far that AMC made. I don't care what anybody says. There's a two-door hardtop, 
uh, front engine, rear wheel drive, just like any other muscle car, uh, four seater with the AMX being the special go fast version. There was two production years and or I'm sorry, two generations of production, and it was made from 68 to 74. So the Javelin came out slightly before the AMX. They shared the platform. And then from 71 to 74, the AMX became a, uh, a high performance model. AMC decided to do something a little weird with this where they wanted to make the Javelin a pony car and also a muscle car. So, again, we were talking earlier how they offered so many engines for these cars. They offered nine different engine configurations and, I believe, four different uh, transmissions. <laughs> so you could mix and match, do whatever you wanted. And before we get into anything about the car, Teague, this guy must have been awesome. Because he said some really cool stuff. He referred to the styling of the Javelin as the wet t-shirt look. Voluptuous curves with nary a hint of fat. So this guy partied, is what I'm saying. Do you think Teague was involved in the Playmate marketing? 100% I think Teague was involved in that. I think, of, of course he was, yes. Dr. So the reason the AMX and the Javelin shared the same thing is... AMC could not afford to design, you know, like most cars. So you have the Mustang. Mustang had how many different variations? You have a notchback, you have a fastback, you have a convertible. Um, Barracuda had the same, which I think those are like the direct competitors for the Javelin at the time. Until you get into the more muscle carly ones where you're now competing against the Camaro or full size like Chevelle, stuff like that. But they couldn't afford to do that and they couldn't actually they couldn't afford to make another manufacturing line where they could do that. So they decided to roll that all into one and make a, another Dick Teague quote, a smooth semi-fastback roof line that helps set the Javelin aside from other pony cars. I, I love this dude. I wish he was still alive. <laughs> I wish I could just hang out with this guy. He sounds awesome. I mean, he might still be alive. Hey, he might. Definitely not. So the first gen, 68 to 70. Uh, is offered in anything from a 232 cubic inch 3.8 liter inline six with 145 horse torques up to a 390 cubic inch 6.4 liter <laughs> starting out at 315 horsepower. So again, just a crazy, I mean, you're, you can get 145 horsepower or you can get 315 horsepower and everything in between debuted in August of 1967 for the 68 model year at $2,743 in 1968 dollars. It was the first in the industry to use a fiberglass safety padding, flush-mounted paddle store or style door handles. They were trying to get ahead of the EPA restrictions that they knew were coming, and it was the first to conform with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration standards that included mandatory side markers, three-point uh, lap belts headrests on the front seats and they completely removed any of their stylistic bright trim on the interior so that way it wouldn't flash back into the driver's face and you know blind you if you haven't seen javelin look it up they're weird so it's really hard for me to describe um but they had like a they called it a twin venturi look and essentially it was like a recessed grill uh, outboard headlights, turn signals that were set down into the bumper, and air scoops that didn't do anything. 
and a windshield set at a 59 degree angle for a quote unquote sporty appearance, which it does look sporty, but it's got a very high rear end. So that slope going up into it kind of makes it look just like a fastback or, you know, if you think of a Mustang fastback, it'd be very similar to that. So the Javelin then offered, this is prior to the AMX coming in, but the Javelin offered something called the Go Package, which AMC ended up offering on a bunch of their cars. Uh, it came with the 5.6 liter 343 V8, front discs, completely upgraded suspension, dual exhaust, uh, very 70s retro, full length, colorful stripes along the side, and then later in generations like a big C stripe, and would run... A 0 to 16 8 seconds with a 15.4 quarter mile. And then when you swapped in later when they offered the 390, you could get that down to 7 seconds with that 6.4. Using the same Group 19 dealer installed performance accessories that we mentioned with the AMX, you could upgrade to a dual 4 barrel cross ram intake manifold, high performance cams, uh, roller rocker arms, dual point ignition. And I mean, all sorts of other goodies. Again, it was like a, um, what's the word I'm looking for, Louie? Not Copart. Like a dealership offered, like Yanko. Yeah, like an over the shelf dealer installed. Yeah, there we go. So the 1968 production was 55,125. And the average age of the first 1,000 buyers, according to AMC, was 29. So, again, they're trying to move into that younger market when, realistically, AMC up until this point, really up until the AMX, had shot at more of the subcon not subcompact, but compact family market. And, you know, through their partnerships with Playboy and the way they marketed their cars, they ended up actually you know hitting that target demographic uh, wow. of the younger generation and for such a cheap price point again you're thinking if you're trying to get into in 1970 into a camaro into a chevelle into a mustang into i actually i have no idea on the prices of like a skylark or a gs back then but you're going to be spending probably a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars more to get into a car that was probably you know I wouldn't say slower, but uh, the 390s were fast. Very, very fast car. Yeah, I think conservatively underrated, too. Especially, like, you look in a lot of AMC communities, like, the the 390 and the 401 deserve a lot more credit than what they get, especially the aftermarket support. You could build a pretty decent, relatively small motor, right? Like, 400 cubic inches isn't world-beating, but... Yeah, they're still small blocks. Yeah, it's crazy. I love it. Hard. I was just going to say, those are the two most exciting models in, in my point of view. Just the Javelin's more mainstream in terms of they made a lot more and they were more affordable and they weren't all performance focused, but every Javelin you see looks like it moves quick. Yeah, because they look freaking sweet. Dick Teague knocked it out of the park. But again, you're not going to have a ton of after aftermarket support when you only have six years of a car sure i mean of course the the big ones that we all know and love you know chargers challengers i keep saying it camaros they're gonna have a ton of aftermarket support because they just keep getting made if you're changing your car every six months you know nobody's gonna want to actually support it so 
in the 1969 model year, they did very little other than change the entire front grille, change the entire rear tail light assembly, added some five-spoke Magnum wheels, uh, zero to 8,000 tack, and a cowl over the instrument panel. One of the cool things they did, which I don't know why AMC did this, they offered like a million different sub-packages of this car. The coolest one was the Mod Javelin, which create or used some things from Craig Breedlove, the Spirit of America, and used some of his design elements and added that where they gave him like a roof-mounted spoiler, uh, exhaust rocker trim, some air scoops that were actually functional, and they brought in that big bad paint that I talked about earlier, which was like the neon blue, oranges, a lime green, and painted bumpers instead of the chrome bumpers that you know we were used to seeing. In 1969, 40,675s were produced. So moving into 1970, uh, like we talked about the AMX, they decided to go with a much longer hood, completely again, redesigned the front end, a completely new rear end. Uh, they ran full width tail lamps with a single center mounted reverse light, which is actually pretty sweet if you ever get to see a video of that. Completely redesigned the entire suspension. So we're now... We're three years into this car, and all three have been just completely gone over. They did a single-year interior redesign, which changed the entire dashboard, the center console, the interior door trim, the bucket seats, the steering wheel, and essentially everything in it, the carpet, all completely different just for one year, and then went back to kind of what they were doing in 69 when they hit to the next generation, which is the second gen. Second gen runs from 1971 to 1974, again offered in all sorts of engines, but they bumped it up to the 401 that you mentioned earlier, which is a 6.6 liter with 9.5 to 1 compression ratio and out the box 330 horsepower and 430 foot pounds of torque. That's incredible out of a stock car. I thought you'd respond to that, but you didn't. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I really, uh, really thought you'd have something to say about that. Okay. Did you think it was that impressive? 430 foot pounds of torque? The Buick's made 510 foot pounds of torque. Shut up. Anyway. No, I mean, that's, that's the facts. In the same year, nevertheless. That was in what? The 455? Big meat. This is a small block, a 401. I mean, who's to judge? All right, so in 1971, that's when the AMX became the premium high-performance edition of the Javelin and was advertised as the closest thing you can buy to a Trans Am champion from a dealership. It included a lot of the things that made it a successful racing car, which they had very specifically designed aerodynamics for the front and rear spoiler, which was completely redone for the Trans Am Racing Series, which they kind of came over and simulated in this, the AMX version. And then this thing ran 14s at 93 miles an hour on regular pump gas and weighed about 3,244 pounds with this 401. So your 19,000-pound Buick isn't going to do that. 3,800 pounds. Thank you very much. In 1972, that was record sales for the Javelin. And again, they changed everything because why not? 
change the grill, change the front, change the rear, the light tail or the tail light panel, all of that. But to something you mentioned earlier, you talked about that muffler protection plan that they had. AMC was the very first company to offer a complete one year or 12,000 mile warranty for anything other than the tires on the car. So anything happened, AMC would take the car back. They would fix it. If they had to fix it for over a day, they'd give you a loaner car to go out and beat on, um, which eventually became industry standard and is now, you know, it, it comes with every car you would ever get new off the lot or even used off the lot. So in 1972 and 1973, we get another really weird sub AMC car, which is the Javelin Pierre Cardin. There is just over 4,000 of these produced, and they were completely, utterly just interior packages. And Lou, if you get a chance, look these up because they are the most 70s looking thing you'll ever see. I tried looking it up while you were talking. I couldn't spell it. It is Pierre Cardin, C-A-R-D-I-N. All they were is they're like pleated seats with. Oh, beautiful. No. No. I love it. They have like six colored stripes that wrap up around the door panels, into the dash, up onto the the pleated seats. Uh, yeah, they, they were. They were living, maybe. For eighty-four dollars and ninety-five cents and seventy-three dollars, you could do that. It's about five hundred bucks today. It's worth it. I have listed next to it, ugly as bleep. Truck. Yeah, dude, they're horrible looking. I don't know how you like that. So again, in 72, they received another facelift. 73, they got another facelift. We are five years into the production of this car, and it has changed literally every year. They got rid of all the cool stuff, uh, any of the functional scoops, all gone. And added, now we're into EPA restrictions or, uh, you know, traffic restrictions where you've got to add five mile per hour bumpers, which made like every car ugly. And they have like two big rubber ugly guards on the front that just look terrible. They also ran into the issues where emissions were being limited and the 401, which was sitting at like 330 or 345 horsepower, just two years prior, was now throttled down to a 255 horsepower, going 0 to 60 in 7.7 seconds, where I think earlier it was in like the fives, with a top speed of 115.53 miles per hour. The production in this year dropped, and it dropped pretty steadily from 1969 on, down to about 31,000 units just under. Although... AMC again offered another crazy version, which was the Trans Am Victory Editions, which these things, again, another redesign on the Trans Am cars of the time that got like a complete, essentially, uh, it was an appearance package, but also a performance package where they took some of like the lower end stuff off of a Trans Am Victory car and put it into here. They came with their very special... Uh, VIN number and were just like a heavily optioned Javelin, but still pretty fast. However, they came with the throttled down engines, so you really weren't getting all that much. They probably also didn't make the money that they spent. Like, you know what I'm saying? That, was yeah. it a profitable option package? Probably not. No. 
no. Like, you got, like, cool new wheels and stuff. That's it. Some decals that say SCCA. Yeah. Not much. Not much to them. And then in 74, with the pony market declining, uh, crazy, like, even more restrictions coming in, AMC decided to get rid of this car, which has now changed six times, uh, eight times if you want to count the AMX in there. Uh, they also were contending with oil embargoes. Competitors were downsizing their cars, and AMC could not – literally couldn't afford to downsize their car. The other thing they couldn't afford because, as we talked about last time, they didn't understand what finances were, were in 75 just to meet bumper restrictions on solely the Javelin. It would have cost them $12 million just in engineering on their plant just to be able to do the front bumpers, which – like again, responsible. At this time, they were borrowing money to stay afloat. They also decided AMC to introduce the Matador, which is one I wish we would have talked about a little bit more. And the Matador, when it came out, it was supposed to have a direct competitor in the big three. The only market share the Matador really took away from was the Javelin. So AMC introduced a brand new car to compete with its own line of cars, and that was literally it. <laughs> that pretty much yeah it was pretty much the death knell for it it's there was nothing else they could do that muscle pony car completely gone and they're competing with themselves it's typical amc and decided to change over their line to make the pacer which looked like a little bug of some sort a nugget yeah ugly car can i talk about one, the, one last thing and then you can so this – the AMC Javelin was the very first car to be used as – or the very first pony car to officially be used as a police car by any police organization. They won 132, 71, and 72 Javelins that they sold to the Alabama Highway Patrol that came with the 401 6.6 liters and roamed around Alabama and pulled criminals over, which is pretty sweet. Got to use those, all those horse ponies. Yeah, do you think anyone's going to know what we mean by horse torques? Because that's just a made-up word in our vernacular. It essentially means horsepower. Listen enough, you'll figure it out. Well, it means horsepower when we're talking about horsepower numbers, and it means torque when we're talking about torque numbers. So Exactly. Speaking what's your cool car? So I picked this car. Well, really, I was going to pick the whole Rebel line, but... I remember going to a car show with my dad. We had a 71 Buick Electra, very nice car that he and I restored. And we parked next to a Rebel machine, the machine, in this car show. And it was just a pretty iconic looking car. Um, so Rebel, as a line, a midsize line, ran from 67 to 70. It replaced the AMC Classic, which then later the Rebel got replaced by the Matador. And the most recognizable muscle car version of the Rebel was the machine. They also had like the SC Rambler in 1969. The machine carry on uh, carried on through 1971 on the Matador platform. But the machine was literally red, white. I mean, it was a white base coat, had some red striping, had a blue reflective stripe and a blue uh, hood. It was just wild. Uh, really cool car. And it wasn't just all show. Like it legitimately had power. It was a collaboration between Hearst Performance and AMC. 
but they really didn't advertise it as that like they did on the sc rambler a year earlier it had a its standard engine was a 390 it had 340 horsepower 51 at 5100 rpm and then 430 pounds of horse torques at 3600 rpm so i mean it revved low and it moved torque at a low rpm cycle so it also came with literally a special heads valve train cam redesigned intake and exhaust this is the most powerful engine setup in any amc vehicle while retaining features for normal street operations as well as components to assure outstanding performance characteristics without like high cost penalties for example like emission stuff or you know it could run on on regular pump gas and uh, it did have a 690 motorcraft four barrel carburetor and it was a 10.0 to 1 compression ratio engine also had a ram hair hood scoop it had that was again painted like electric blue had a hood tack it had uh you know different stylistic features that just kind of brought you in um came standard with a four-speed transmission an automatic was also available had either a 354 or 391 rear axle power disc brakes 15 inch tires with the wide e60 goodyear polyglass and um had mag wheels it was just kind of a bad looking car but back to their advertising endeavors you could pull up a 1970 or a 1969 hot rod magazine and you will read that coming directly from the manufacturer not a writer at hot rod the machine is not as fast as a 427 cubic inch chevrolet corvette or a chrysler hemi engine but it will beat a volkswagen a slow freight <laughs> train or your old man's cadillac like this thing ran in the 14s it was it was like a 1440 quarter mile car like that's nothing to laugh at. It's a fast car. Yeah. That's that's so remember that top fifty muscle cars I have? Like that's running with at the bottom end of that. Like and again, similar to your point with the AMX and with the Javelin, you weren't paying four thousand dollars for the highest optioned Chevelle. The, like an LS six Chevelle was thirty eight hundred dollars. Yeah, you were paying you're, you're paying, paying at for every bell and whistle, you're paying thirty two hundred bucks. Yeah. Like, not a, a, a car to sneeze about. And, I mean, they produced 2,300. It's not like it was a high production thing. It, I mean, literally, you take the word rebel and you think, well, you could think a number of things. But it was red, white, and blue. Like, it was a in-your-face car. But it did back it up. I mean, 340 horsepower, nothing to sneeze at. So I just thought it was funny with, you know, all that hype. It's not going to beat your average Corvette, but it will take out your average Volkswagen. Or a slow train. train. <laughs> <laughs> the slow freight train. So that was the car I wanted to highlight. That's actually probably my favorite car. I don't think I would ever own one, but that's it. We covered it. We're done with this topic. All right. Why is the Javelin your favorite? Okay, so I don't know if you've ever seen it, but in 2017 at SEMA – Ring Brothers did a 1972 Javelin. Yeah, the Prestone one. Yeah, the Prestone gold one. Oh my God, is that the coolest looking car ever? It has a, it's a supercharged Hellcat engine in it, right? I don't know. I have no idea. I'm almost certain. I 
I haven't looked this car up in years, but when I saw, yeah, it's or three hundred thousand dollars plus. So I'm not surprised. Yeah, it's definitely supercharged Hellcat car, and just you know, Ring Brothers, they don't, they never miss anything. I mean, that car from top to bottom, everything that they touched is just absolutely gorgeous. If you want to see the best looking javelin in history of javelins, look up that car. Um, I'm pretty sure it won like a million awards. It's so cool. So that's why that's my favorite car. If I could have anything. Now, if I bought a Javelin, I would never, ever in a million years be able to get it close to what that is. So maybe I wouldn't like just a normal Javelin, but that one. I think it has 1,100 horsepower. I love that. Horse torques. I'd like to close this out. We have run through a number of topics over the last, what, 12 months. So five, six, seven episodes. Probably more at this point. I don't really know. Uh, I think we're at like 10. Email us your thoughts. What do you want to hear? Any topics you want us to, to discuss? We, I mean, we've literally done everything from Studebaker to Buick Grand National. We're covering everything. We'll do the Model T. I don't care. I mean, I don't really want to do it, but I know there's people was, who would hear it. My pap would love that. Yeah, there you go. This one's for you, pap. All right, maybe we'll do the Model T next. Uh, which leads me, I'm going to end this. We had a local ice festival in the area here up in northeastern pa uh it was very ironic because it was cool everyone was outside masks were being worn everyone was socially distancing there was a a model t truck at a funeral home that was uh, like a gorgeous it was an all wood cab it was a wood bed it was a really really nicely done restoration you could tell like it had like led taillights and stuff like some modern uh upgrades but at the funeral home is where they decided to set up the dj booth so they're blasting music as your hearse of a Model T rolls you into a casket. So on that note. All right. And for Lou and Sam, we will catch you next time here on the Lou and Sam Venturecast. Thanks. We are back to Studio A. Great job, Lou. Sam, appreciate what you guys have done here. Okay, let's pull it into the garage and hear this week's trivia answer. If you recall, the question was this. AMC produced the Rebel Machine in limited quantity in 1970. All came standard in one striking tricolor scheme. What were those three colors? And the answer is red, white, and blue. All 2,326 of the Rebel Machine came in the American flag colors. And truly, as you know, AMC was struggling to compete with the, the big three, but they put out a real contender as far as a a street muscle car and it was able to uh, run with anything from Ford and GM as well as Mopar so they did a very good job with that. My friends we are at the end of this week's car audio journey. Would like to close the show by saying how much we appreciate you our fans. All of us here at CFC work long hours each week to find interesting content, great guests, and valuable information that makes this podcast both fun and informative. We do it all for you. Thanks for taking time out of your busy lives to share Cars of Carl with all your car buddies and friends because together this brand is growing and you are our key contributor to that. Because together it is all about car community, car culture. So for now, I'll sign off with drive well, be well, take care. <laughs>